Welcome to In the Room, episode number three. I'm Ryan Hughley, and if you don't know, I'm the founding and lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church just outside Chicago. You can find me online at ryanhughley.com and also on Twitter at at Ryan Hughley. That's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. The concept of the podcast is simple. I want to bring you into the room with pastors, authors, and artists for conversations about the craft of ministry. And I want to ask you to do a lot more than just listen. I want to invite you to contribute. You can join the conversation online using the hashtag in the room. Now, on this episode, I'm talking with author and blogger Justin Taylor, and I really want you to know what kind of guy Justin is. Now, Justin has the honor of being the senior vice president of Crossway Books, a major publisher. But just a little over a year ago, when I had some questions about publishing, Justin gave me almost two hours over lunch answering all of my questions. So he is incessantly gracious with his time, and our conversation is just one more example of that. Now, in our time together, we discuss the benefits and liabilities of social media. Justin's honest about some mistakes that he's made as a blogger, and we talk about uh, whether or not we really need watch blogs. And so I don't know what you're doing right now. If you're on your commute or you are uh, on a run or just sitting in your living room, regardless of where you are, I want to invite you into the room for my conversation with Justin Taylor. Hey, Justin, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Um, I had kind of a hard time finding very much in-depth background about you online. And so could you tell me just a little bit about uh, where you're from and did you grow up in Chicago and when did you come to faith? Where'd you go to school? All that kind of stuff. Sure. Yeah, it's uh, great to talk to you, Ryan. And uh, yeah, I'm glad that you couldn't find much on me. Online. <laughs> yeah. That's intentional. I uh, grew up in Sioux City, Iowa. Okay. Um, met my wife in elementary school. Wow. Um, although she didn't reciprocate my overtures of love until the end of college. Okay. Um, so a little bit of delay there between our uh, uh, relationship there. Um, I prayed the sinner's prayer when I was uh, three or four years old, I think, uh, after hearing a sermon in the Assemblies of God Church where we were attending for a brief time. Then we went to a United Methodist Church for the rest of my growing up years. Um, and whether or not that was genuine conversion at that tender age of four, yeah. I, it may have been. Um, but I think I really understood the gospel uh, at the end of my freshman year of high school at an FCA camp, uh, FCA leadership camp in uh, Colorado. Uh, went to college at University of Northern Iowa, became a religion major, Okay. Um, and almost lost my faith in the process my first year. Wow. Um, I recognized right away that um, theological liberalism had no lasting value. It was either full-blown Christian orthodoxy or it was nihilism. Yeah. So I didn't want to play any games um, you know, in between there. So that was really a crisis of faith for me. And it really, I think, ended up shaping really my whole life and ministry from that yeah. point on. Um, my wife and I got married um, after I graduated from college. So we're at 1998 now. Okay. And then uh, day after our honeymoon, moved up to Minneapolis, Minnesota, became an apprentice there at uh, Bethlehem Baptist Church, entered a, a seminary level program. Um, and I had always wanted to go to seminary and uh, never ended up going to a, a physical on-site seminary in the traditional route, but did that for a few years 
and then stayed on working for Piper um, before I came to Crossway and eight what, years ago. What were you doing uh, there with Desiring God in Bethlehem? Were you with Bethlehem or Desiring God, or was it one and the same? Yeah, so they had um, this two-year part-time apprenticeship program where you worked in the church, did studies, about 40 credit hours of study. Um, so after that, I was planning to move to Louisville, go to Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and they asked me if I'd stay on for one year working as Piper's kind of editorial research assistant. Okay. Just a one-year gap before they, so they could have enough time to find somebody else uh, kind of longer term. And so when that year was up, I, I applied to Southern for a second time, got accepted, and had a moving van lined up. And they came and had a conversation about me staying on longer term. Um, so that wasn't originally the route I'd planned, and it was a hard decision because I felt like if I said no to that, that I I could say all these things about wanting to go to seminary someday, but I, it felt like it's probably never going to happen realistically as uh, we were starting to have a family and settling down, that sort of thing. So uh, that was a hard decision to make, but um, stayed on then for several more years. What was it like? working with uh with John Piper in that proximity and what are some of the things that you know you were struck by in working with him yeah you know going back to what I was just saying about not being able to go to seminary uh in the way that I had planned being involved in the local church like that was a seminary experience in and of itself and, sure. and more than I think what a traditional seminary would have offered me at that stage in my life you know, it's one thing to read great books about um, suffering and pain and pastoral care. It's another thing to um, see a 40-year-old mom uh, die of cancer and to think about pastoral issues and counseling and, and forge your theology in that context. So that was hugely significant for me just in general. And uh, not just Piper, but the other pastors and elders there really had a, a massive, um, decisive role in shaping who I am and what I believe. And Piper in particular, you know, he has a strong personality and anybody who's heard him preach knows that he he's very passionate and he he knows what he believes and he proclaims it um, quite strongly. And he's, he's the same person, um, you know, just sitting down at Pizza Hut as he is standing behind the pulpit, although I think the Lord gives him a special anointing. Sure. Uh, when he and his his love for Pizza Hut is one of the best details about him, in, in, <laughs> right. in my humble opinion. Yep. Of all the places that a man could love, his yep. affection for Pizza Hut is quite amazing. Yeah, he has good taste in food. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but, you know, what struck me the most, I think, about working with Dr. Piper is just his humility, because he really does believe so strongly in the authority of the word that it doesn't matter if he's... 30 years older than somebody or 40 years older. Um, you know, it doesn't matter how much education they've had. If they can have a serious conversation with him about the word, uh, he takes them very seriously and, and will submit if he's shown that he's wrong. So uh, I think it was a humbling thing for him to be sitting in this class of five or six apprentices talking about the sermon that he just preached and having these uh, young guys, you know, challenges exegesis. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know that a lot of people would do that, but to me, that was just a demonstration of how deeply he believed that there is a, 
an authority higher than himself. Sure. Um, so he's been enormously kind and generous to me throughout the years and uh, really can't express all the different ways that I'm uh, in debt to him yeah. under God. That's great. It's interesting that you mentioned <clears throat> uh, it was in undergrad when you studied religion, correct? Right. And that that ended up having um, some destructive impact on your faith, at least for a season of time. Yeah. At, at Redemption, we have a good number of both college and seminary students, and I've seen that happen. Mm -hmm. And I've sadly heard uh, a number of stories, particularly in seminary, of guys and gals that have gone and sadly lost their faith and, in the midst of that. So what are some, what are, what was key for you in kind of bouncing back from that and, uh, and what from your own story do you think would be uh, helpful or informative for, for those that are maybe going into college and or seminary as Christians, or maybe they're even in the thick of just not even sure, not even sure where they're at right now mm -hmm. as a result of that? Yeah. Yeah, everybody's story is different. And I wish there was kind of a, a one size fits all yeah. response to that. I think for me, it was really crucial um, to have Christian community. Um, you know, involvement in the local church, involvement in even parachurch ministries. In my context, uh, we had a strong, even though it was a public university, we had a lot of Christians on campus. And I think that was the Lord's mercy. Uh, I think that it's important for uh, people in those sort of settings to recognize that there are people smarter than themselves who've thought through these issues. I think hmm. one thing that throws us off balance as Christians, especially if we've been raised in a, a conservative home that may be somewhat uh, superficial intellectually. Yeah. And I don't mean that just as a pejorative put down, but uh, there, there's a sort of Christian engagement with the mind that only goes to a certain level. Sure. And that's not... Uh, inherently wrong. Not everybody's called to be a scholar. Not everybody's called to devote their life to apologetics. But it is helpful to remember that there are people smarter than our, ourselves that have thought through these issues and that there are good answers and that there really aren't new objections. Uh, I think we can start to feel like, oh, this this professor who has a PhD from Harvard is is raising things that no Christian has ever thought of before. Sure. Because we've lived intellectually in a, a sort of an isolated environment. Uh, so that was helpful for me, you know, just to read books by guys like William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland. And, you know, even though some of it went over my head, to recognize there are people who face these issues head on and have very good answers. Um for myself, I felt like I needed to um, almost go to school in apologetics on the side. You know, so I had my reading in the class, but then you're not going to survive um, that kind of environment without Christian community, I don't right. think, and also without becoming a reader. Um, so you've, you've got to read and you've got to interact with fellow believers. And I, I think there's a certain humility and confidence that can be combined that I'm that recognizes our own finiteness, our own finitude, that we might not have all the answers, but that God is bigger and that we don't need to figure out every single answer, uh, but we can pursue truth as far as we can. 
and recognize at the same time that the emperor really has no clothes. Sure. These guys who are brilliant in certain ways are also suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And, um, you know, they may be intellectually brilliant, but morally, uh, they can be very foolish. Yeah. And the sooner you can see that and not be intimidated by somebody who can use more technical vocabulary than you can and who've, who's read more books than you have, you're always going to find people like that. Sure. Um, so at the end of the day, I think it was mainly owing to the Lord's mercy and to patience. It was one night when I uh, went home from a class where a question had been raised that I just could not figure out. And it seemed to me like a decisive death blow to Christian framework. And I just sat under a a large oak tree. This was cool fall weather, looking up at the stars and just crying out to God that if he's real and if he's there uh, for him to make himself known. And, and he did, he was gracious and he was kind. Again, that's not a formula. Everybody can follow, you know, kind of a three-step plan. Sure. But I, I think humility and patience and then going back to the word again yeah. and again is yeah. crucial. And I, I think two things that you said are for sure universal, at least have been in my own journey and in the stories of other people that I've met. And that's being involved in the larger conversation, you know, via writing, I think is is such helpful and wise advice. And then two, just the importance of community and having that to ground you uh, in a sense and, and be able to dialogue with you not as an opponent, but as a friend in the midst of that. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like what I hear you saying is those two things for sure, whether or not everybody ends up under that same tree, under those same stars, uh, those two things should, should probably be a part of everyone's journey through that. Don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And it is encouraging, I think, for people, you know, who may be listening to this, who find themselves in that position, that there are many, many people who have gone through similar things. Absolutely. Really wrestled and have come through it. Uh, there's something about Christian culture for whatever reason, this is part of culture at large. We focus so much on the horror stories. I mean, even uh, parents raising children in the church and those children walk away from the faith. We don't hear the eight out of 10 who stay in the faith and, uh, you know, stay in the church their whole life. We hear the 20% and uh, that can really, uh, cause us to to question things even more. So I think it's helpful to hear there are a lot of people who've gone through, you know, have become philosophy majors and have remained in the faith and have come through it different and and better. Yeah. Don't you think it's probably important as well for pastors and parents uh, to, to probably as students go through that to not panic and Mm -hmm. to make it a, to some extent, a safe place for them to be able to have that, dialogue, because I, I know that, um, I mean, this isn't true at, at my church, and I don't necessarily remember this in churches that I grew up in, but I've heard stories of people feeling, um, I don't know if it's shame or what it might be, but something that would cause them to suppress what they're wrestling with and go elsewhere when the very place that students should be able to wrestle with that is in the church and in their home, don't you think? Absolutely, yep. Panic is what not one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Sure. Uh, and it doesn't really do anything for us. Uh, it may make us feel better, like I, I'm, I'm uh, you know, generating something worthwhile, but it's really a, a subcategory of worry, which Jesus tells us not, not to have. Right. Um, so I, I think patience, 
making a safe place for people to to dialogue about these things. We don't want to lift up doubt as if it's some sort of virtue. Sure. But we want to recognize that in a fallen world where we are finite, that doubt is not unusual. And we want to grow in um, the capacity to listen well, um, to to genuinely enter into this struggle because it is a spiritual struggle. It's not just, there are no such things as purely intellectual struggles. Uh, they have a moral component to it, an ethical component, a spiritual component. And so if, if we can all grow in listening and caring and saying, we, we don't want you to hide these doubts that you might be experiencing. We want to talk to you about them. And I may not have all the answers, but let's work on this together. Yeah, absolutely. That's helpful. Well, Justin, I know that um, people may or uh, may not know, most people are probably going to know you from your blog, Between Two Worlds, uh, that's hosted now by the Gospel Coalition. So tell me a little bit about when and why you started blogging in the first place. Yeah, I think it was nine or 10 years ago, um, back in, I think, 2004, that I started blogging and uh, Hugh Hewitt had come out with a book called blog. Okay. And uh, I thought at that point, well, everybody who is blogging has already uh, done it and I'm too late to the game, uh, which is a pretty naive thought um, back in 2004, everything's already done. Right. Right. Um, but I decided I, you know, I always like to, um, to pass things along to friends by email, interesting articles and, uh, my uh, my wife tells me that I, I like to do show and tell too much. Um, okay. It's it's kind of a sanctified form of gossip, I, I try to tell myself. <laughs> okay. um, but I, I, I just like sharing things that I think are interesting or edifying. And so I thought the blog format might be an interesting way to do that. So sure, started doing it nine or 10 years ago, and it's changed over time. But I mainly start with assumption. People are going on the internet every day. They're going on Facebook. They're going on Twitter. Um, the, the problem is not, uh, not enough information. It's too much information. So if, if I can provide some sort of filter just to point people to good sermons, good books, good quotes, good resources, um, you know, if, if I find them interesting and edifying, I hope some other people do as well. Sure. Um, so blogging's changed over time, but I still think it's a fun thing to do. Is that the way that you, so you, you do, do you feel like you do more uh, directing of people to other people's content than really writing of like composing of your own? Yeah. Um, and I'm, I guess I'm parasitical in that way that my blog would probably shut down if other people weren't doing <laughs> the hard work of writing. But yeah. I said to somebody one time that I think I have the spiritual gift of pointing. Okay. That's good. Um, you know, I can I can write, um, but I, it doesn't seem like that's my primary calling or or gifting. Um, it, it just seems like the Lord set me up in such a way, and that fits with my job as a publisher um, to identify good writing, point people to good things out there, and uh, so if I just see myself as kind of like you know the FedEx man, sure. I'm not making any of these products, most of them. Yeah. Uh, I'm just picking up the packages and delivering them to people's houses. Yeah. How, how you mentioned how blogging's changed over the years. Uh, as someone who's been involved now for over a decade, how have you seen it personally change over the last 10 years? Yeah. I think it's gotten better and I think it's gotten worse. I mean, I think that's always a, um, a fair summary of pretty much any time that we're in. It's the best of times and the worst of times. Sure. Um, 
you know, I, I used to have to deal all the time with blog comments of people just going uh, in unedifying directions and, and being nasty with each other. It seems like people don't comment on blogs very much anymore. Interesting. Um, I think one of the reasons is that people have stopped reading blog comments. Uh, so they're going more to venues like Twitter and Facebook. Um, if I do a blog post now uh, and it, it doesn't get pointed to on Twitter, if I don't point to it, it's pretty much like the proverbial tree falling in a forest with nobody hearing it. Absolutely. Uh, it's almost like it doesn't exist. Yeah. So the the interplay between blogs, which seem more like a traditional form of media now, and social media, which is newer and which will, you know, if we were doing this interview five or ten years from now, those yeah. would be the old school mediums. Um so, and even the rise of Twitter and Facebook, I think, show that um, online interaction has moved a lot towards smaller form and quicker soundbite things. So people used to make fun of blogs that, you know, how can you say anything substantive in a blog? And now it's like, that's, you can do something really substantive on a blog. Totally. And, um, and now Twitter is is mocked for being kind of more of a short form content. Right. So... Where it will all go, I'm not sure, but it's it's always moving and it's always somewhat fluid. Yeah, and w- with all of the um, ways that social media has served to really advance the gospel, and it, I mean, absolutely has in 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 some very significant ways. It's obviously not without its problems. Uh, so if it used to be, um, you know, ungodly destructive conversation in the comments, it's something else today. So what are what are some of the things that you think that concern you maybe about the state of social media, whether whether that be blogging or Twitter or Facebook, but in all of its forms, what are some of your chief concerns that you have right now? I think the most important thing to say, and I, I was thinking about this the other day, you know, these new technologies and forms, they don't really create anything new, uh, but they reveal what's already there. So, um, you know, I've had some concerns about people uh, using Twitter, let's say, as a means by which to um, you know retweet compliments that they've received. Sure, and I, I've talked about this in other venues and stepped on some toes, and and I, I never like making people feel bad. Well, I mainly don't like that. But yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> um, you know, but Twitter didn't create that phenomenon. It it just revealed what's in our hearts already. So I think that. You know, that's an important principle just to keep in mind. There's there's nothing new under the sun. It just takes different forms. And there have been a lot of good writers on technology um, that, that have made one main point over and over again. And I still don't think it's really trickled down to most of us into our consciousness. And that is that any form of technology um, creates something which is very obvious. I mean, you think about life before the iPhone and what the opportunities and and efficiencies and resources that the iPhone created. Uh, but what we don't think about is that there's always, along with that, something that the technology takes away. And and you can. It's not only the new shiny gadgets that this is true of, but uh, you know, it's older things like the creation of a bicycle or the creation of the telegraph. Any of those things, they they create certain opportunities and they create certain problems or limitations or take away certain aspects. Um, 
So I think that's just a really helpful paradigm for us always to have in mind when yeah. it comes to social media. Yeah. It creates wonderful things. Yeah. It creates wonderful ways for us to interact, and it also um, creates some hindrances to true community, to true interaction, to edifying ways of relating to one another. Well, I know that you're careful about uh, your use of uh, whether it be Twitter or your blog and what you say. And, and, and even though a lot of what you do on your blog is pointing to, to other people's content, over the last 10 years, do you feel like there's any uh, regrets that you have or something you've said or tweeted or posted that you wish you wouldn't have or mistakes maybe that you've made as a blogger? Yeah. That people, that, <laughs> that people could learn. I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but that, no, that no. you would, you know, that God could use to help maybe someone else not repeat that same sort of mistake. Yeah. You know, I think... Let me go back to a principle, and I can share a couple examples. Um, but I, I think that I, I used to be guided by one primary question, and that is, is what I'm about to post true? Okay. Which is a great question. I sure. mean, we never want to stop asking that question. Um, but I think that I ask just as frequently now in my own mind, whether consciously or subconsciously, also, is it edifying? Is it fitting? Uh, because the Bible has this category for fittingness. Uh, you know, a word fitly spoken is is distinct from a word truthfully spoken. We never ever, I mean, there's no justification for a word falsely spoken. Yeah. But are there times when you could say something true, but it's not the right time? I'll give you one silly example, um, although it's it's probably a sad example, too. Uh, when I found out at, at work that Michael Jackson had died, I went home and I posted a video that I had seen of his face morphing. You know, you, you may have seen that video yeah. where somebody did like a face morph of when Michael Jackson was uh, younger and what had happened to his face o- over the years. And I didn't do it to make fun of him. Yeah. But I was referring to the fact that um, th- that he was a man who seemed not to to have an identity, who was always trying to create an identity. I quoted uh, something from the, one of the liner notes of one of his albums that I remember seeing when I was in middle school, where he he quoted the line about being the captain of his own soul. And I just mentioned what a horrible thing that is to have on your yeah. tombstone that you know to come to the end of your life to say I was the captain of my own soul. And so every single thing I posted there on that post was true. Yeah. Um, and to this day, I think Michael Jackson is was an incredibly sad individual who who didn't understand that true identity and purpose and meaning could be found in Christ. But that's the sort of thing that posting that, you know, on the very day that he died, was was probably not a word fitly spoken. The the timing was wrong. The the presentation was wrong. Um, I'll give you another example. I read an interview with Rick Warren one time who said that of all the churches in the United States, uh, his church had the most number of baptisms more than any other church that there is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I posted just that quote, no comment, but one of those, uh, I found a graphic of one of those big foam were number one football yeah. things. Yeah. And I just did it, you know, as a juxtaposition and it was sure. trying to be cute, but it was also trying to kind of poke at him of, 
you know, I don't think it's appropriate that you're essentially bragging that yeah. you've got the number one church. Right. Uh, and that's where, for me, having a community of friends who have the freedom to write to me and say, you know, it just doesn't feel right what you did, or it seems like you're being prideful or you're being um, snide or snarky. Um, you know, I, I really value that. And, and so if I'm going to do something controversial now, um, I, I'll frequently send it to a couple of friends that I really trust who can say, yeah, I think this is the right time to do yeah, that. That's smart. Uh, or, or it's not. I, I think the idea of just being a, a totally lone ranger blogger, yeah. Uh, disconnected from the local church, disconnected from true community, disconnected from friends who can speak truth into my life. It's just a mistake. So hopefully I've grown in that, yeah. that way and others. It's it's interesting that you mentioned that. <clears throat> I've, I've heard it said that you can be right in the wrong way. Mm. And um, and I feel like that's what you're describing. And if our, if our sole question is, is it true? Um, that doesn't always lead us to the most loving place. Mm-hmm. And so do you, do you see that as, uh, as a larger problem, um, not just in social media, but across all mediums right now, maybe that is unique to uh, those who might consider themselves more doctrinally oriented or uh, intellectual? Um, it seems as though, and this is an observation I want to know what you think about, mm-hmm. um, that <clears throat> like as long as it's true, and as long as what I'm saying is right, that's the only filter. And, and I think that's problematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the ironies, I think, um, is, is that there are these watch bloggers out there sure. who are conservative. Everybody loves those guys. Yeah, yeah. I love them. Yeah. Um, they're conservative. Um, they can be thoughtful, not always. Um, they are not necessarily known for um, being gentle or humble. Um, and, and, you know, as with everybody, we don't want to just lob everybody into the same category sure. uh, without making any distinctions or discriminations. Um, but it strikes me that, you know, for those who are so doctrine oriented, and I think it ends up being a distortion of doctrine. Sure. Um, it's still a selective form of truth keeping and truth telling. Uh, no matter what prophet is out there, there's still uh, people and heroes within their own orbit that they won't touch with a 10-foot pole in terms of criticism. And as truth-oriented as they are, you don't see them leading in repentance, which is a key aspect of, sure. of truth-telling, and uh, flirting with gossip and um, and slander. So I don't think there's any kind of pure category of anybody who's 100% consistent with all of this. But to your larger question, um, Colin Hansen is writing a book for Crossway uh, called Blind Spots. And he's looking... Uh, at, at Orthodox Christians and thinking of them in three different categories. Uh, on the one hand, you have the courageous, which would describe, you know, the category that you're referring to. Um, and, and Colin would put himself in this category and, and observes that a lot of it has to do with our background, what we came out of, what we see as the great problems in the church. Um, 
you know, what, what we need to stand up for. So you've got courageous Christians on the one hand, you've got compassionate Christians on the other. Yeah. We're always leading with, with empathy and, and looking at the weak and the marginalized. And then the third category, which he calls the commissioned, you know, who are maybe what used to be called the seeker churches. Okay. Where we're always talking about evangelism and coming up with new programs for the church and, he shows how all three of those reflect certain aspects of Christ, uh, but they also come with it certain weaknesses that Christ doesn't have, and that all three camps can really learn from one another, and that Christ himself, you know, is the most courageous person who ever lived, uh, the the most truth-telling, it was, was very doctrinal, uh, and also extraordinarily compassionate and was always about mission and, and bringing in the lost and, and discipling people. So that, that I think, is an interesting and provocative look that yeah. Collins provided that, that I resonate with. Um, you know, there's, no, there's no pure Christians in right. the, the Orthodox right. side, and, and we can all learn from one another without kind of going into relativism or trying to have a kumbaya, can't we all get along? Moment. Absolutely. It's interesting that you mentioned, I'm curious what you think about this, but the whole watch blog thing. Um, does the world need watch blogs? <laughs> I'm, I'm curious genuinely what you think about that. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe the extent of my exposure really tends to be to the more uh, mean and negative and uh, what I would view as just relatively unhelpful. But um, I'm curious what you think, even from like a from an ecclesiology standpoint, like what, what role is, uh, the watch blogger to play or, uh, do we even need that? And is that something that in, uh, obviously in a perfect world, it wouldn't exist, but you think in the context of the church, it would be best if that was managed by the local church or what, what are your thoughts on that whole watch blog thing? Yeah, it's a great question. And, um, to me, the attitude of some watch bloggers, you know, which is in itself is a pejorative term, but it's not an incorrect term. Sure. Um, How would you define that? I, I think somebody who is is driven by um, correcting others, uh, whether that's correcting false ethics, or whether that's correcting false doctrine, or whether that's exposing certain things. Uh, to me, it's a, a watch blogger is somebody who thinks of that as his prime, his or her primary purpose and modus operandi. Yeah, I think that that can be done in a way that um, is truthful. Uh, although I end up seeing a lot of gossip, it's interesting, uh, and I, I, I don't want to. I want to be careful in how I say this because I don't want to make it sound like I'm pulling rank, but. Just in my position with people I know and situations I know, I'm, I'm in this situation in life where I end up knowing a lot of backstories behind, you know, the, the alarmist evangelical headlines, sure. knowing some of the people. And it's interesting when you know the true story or you know more of the story than the watch bloggers know to see how often... Uh, it really is filled with speculation and and false information. Uh, so that I think is one of the ironies of of the watch blogger. They they never have full access to the information, so right. it ends up being a lot of gossip and speculation. Right. Um, at the same time, if no one was ever doing that, 
um, I think people would get away with stuff that they wouldn't have um, w- without some of those blogs. Yeah. So in my own heart, I've never been able to dismiss it entirely. Uh-huh. It would be easy just to say no one should ever do that. Right. We are to correct error. We are to identify error. Um, and and just so you know, uh, you may know this already. Some people uh, would think of me as a watch blogger because okay. you know I've written about Rob Bell and. Uh, when he was coming out with his book, I did a, a big blog post. Yeah, I remember that on him. Um, you know, some people liked that and were cheering it on. Some people disliked it and were booing it. Sure. For myself, I feel like I should do that once in a blue moon. Yeah. Uh, there are some situations where um, other people aren't covering it. And there may be a fitting, appropriate time. It's always hard to know 100%. Yeah. But I think, and I can only say what I do and what I think, um, that it has some credibility in the fact that I don't do it very often. So I I pick my battles. But I think your typical watch blogger doesn't pick his battles because he starts to see everything as a battle. Um, And I just think it's spiritually unhealthy to be that way. I I spend most of my energy trying to help people see what's good and what's right and what's edifying. And I think after a while, people get a nose for the truth. They start to to see truth and see what it smells like and what it tastes like. And they can discern air. The, you know, the, the watch blogging approach says, let me just come at it through the front door. Yeah. Guns blazing. And, and I think, one of the things that creates when you do that um, is just a lot of suspicion and and an approach where you almost depend upon the watch blogger to be your authority. Yeah. You know, I don't know if this is right or if it's wrong, but I'm going to go check out blogger X, Y, or Z who are going to tell me. Right. I want to try to equip people to have that that spirit of appropriate biblical discernment so they can discern that for themselves. You know, I... I've never done, um, you know, or probably very little, I've done blog posts on Joe Osteen and what he teaches. But I think the people who are reading me every day, do they really need me to tell them that what Victoria Osteen said is wrong? Sometimes it's an opportunity for a teaching moment, and it can be interesting. uh, And and goofy stuff can be a way into certain discussions that, that ends up being illuminating. Uh, but for me just to go on and on and on about how, you know, this pastor pulled some cheesy stunt, then it just becomes making fun for the sake of making fun. And you can, you can always put it under the banner of, I'm just trying to help people. I'm just trying to speak truth to power and all those sort of things. I think at the end of the day, it just, it's soul shriveling to make that your primary aim and calling. Yeah, no, I think there, there's a lot of wisdom there. I think that Clearly, especially as a pastor, I feel a responsibility to um, both equip, but also to protect my people from false doctrine. So I think um, I definitely don't have a problem with that. I think like even the way that you defined, at least in the most narrow sense, the way that we would think about what would be considered a watch blog, it would be someone who feels like their, their whole platform, in a sense, is one of correction. That I think is weird. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't. I missed that as being a spiritual gift in the New Testament, um, where it's sort of your responsibility to keep watch on 
uh, everyone and everything that goes on, and to your point, uh, without very many of the details. Uh, so I think that there's a lot of wisdom in what you're saying about how we go about approaching that. Well, Justin, thanks so much for your time. I'm very thankful for you, for your blog, for Crossway and all you guys are doing. And thank you very much for taking the time to do this. Thanks, Ryan. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of In The Room. I don't know about you, but I try to be intentional about identifying at least one thing to take away from a conversation like this. And in my conversation with Justin, he mentioned two questions to ask ourselves before we post anything on social media. And I actually think that these questions apply to all of our speech in general. And those two questions were, is this true? And is this edifying? You know, just because something is true doesn't always mean that it's edifying. And so these are questions that I know I'm gonna continue to chew on and I hope you will too. What was the one thing that stuck out to you? I want to ask that you would share your one thing online using the hashtag in the room. And as always, I would love to connect with you on my blog, ryanhugley.com and on Twitter at Ryan Hughley. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and help me spread the word. And if you enjoyed this episode, it would be a huge help if you would take just a second and leave us a review on iTunes. We'll be back next week with episode number four in my conversation with Dr. Greg Allison. He's professor of Christian theology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he's the author of a great new book called Roman Catholic Theology and Practice, an Evangelical Assessment. It is going to be hugely helpful. So until then, we're in this together. I hope this was helpful. I love you, and I look forward to next time.